really did want to have a more interactive discussion um, on this particular topic. And we've uh, discussed this and taught this in various forms uh, countless times, but rather than having uh, one speaker give a uh, one-hour monologue, we thought it might be more beneficial for us to have more of an interactive exchange, both with each other and with the audience. And uh, I think that we have a sufficient representation among us of, of multiple sides of this question. And we'll see how, how true that is as we go on. But we want to encourage you straight up, please ask questions. This will be far more helpful for you and for everyone around you if you can think of your hardest question and throw it at us. Um, we're not guaranteeing that we will answer, but we will do our best, and we believe the Lord will shine light and give truth and grace according to His will. Um, I'd like to start by just giving a couple frames to consider. When we, whenever we start talking about salvation, we are inclined, people are inclined to fall into minimal requirements. And I want to rebrand those minimal requirement, that minimal requirement framework as legalism. I want to start by just asking you, why do you obey the speed limit when you are driving down the road? Is it because you love the speed limit, because you have chosen it for yourself, because you adore the institution that has chosen it, or do you obey the speed limit to avoid contact with the cop? That is an example of legalism. And so I'm going to use that framework, that paradigm, and say that much of what is touted as grace and faith, the loudest, is the most legalist in Christianity. Because whenever we look at our salvation and we think of it in terms of what do I have to do to be saved? And then once I've done that, I don't have to do any more. Have we not reduced God down to a problem that we need to solve expeditiously? In the same manner, legalism is seen in, in uh, yesterday. My calendar said tomorrow is tax day, like that was something to celebrate. Some of the accountants are looking <laughs> like they know that that is not worth celebrating. But tax day represents a legal requirement in our lives. In fact, we're even commanded by Scripture to pay our taxes. But there's nothing about it that, it, that we relish, that we enjoy, that we look forward to. In short, it does not come from grace. It comes from the law. And when you're paying your taxes again, you're going to see a minimal requirement mindset guide the whole process. Brother John Haldenstein is an accountant, and you're sitting close by. So when you're filling out your taxes, and, you know, let's say you have to pay 15%, do people hire you to figure out if they can pay a little bit more? <laughs> Is the general attitude toward this legal requirement, well, it's 15, but I'm just feeling like I'm going to give a little extra. And typically in this legal framework, are people scrutinized more for giving too much or too little? 
too little. Minimum requirement legalism always leads to what is the least that I have to give. And it's an appropriate attitude when dealing with a harsh taskmaster, to quote Jesus' parable. And it has utterly infiltrated the church that shouts the loudest about grace and faith. A sure sign of it is if you abandon the legalistic mindset, the legalistic framework, and you adopt its counterpart, which is the relational paradigm, then you believe with Jesus that this is eternal life to know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Now, he does not say this is eternal life to know about him. How different that construction would be if he had introduced the word about. But he uses the word ginosko in the Greek, which is used in the Septuagint to render yada from the Hebrew. And he's saying that eternal life, salvation, is to know, to be knowing, to have a relationship with the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Now, if that's your paradigm, that legalistic framework makes no sense. So we can see the relational paradigm. I've used taxes and the speed limit to show that legalism is something, is minimum requirements that we adhere to to avoid contact with an entity we don't like. Now let's look at the relational paradigm. If you say, if you take the example of a husband and wife, which is the prototypical love story in our experience, and you try to take minimum requirements and apply them to a marriage, how are they going to work? So let's, let's look at this. Um, what, if you, what if you tried to limit and define the marriage in terms of what do I need to do to be married? I don't want to do any more than that. Well, you just need to go to, before the altar and say, I do, and then go your way and live, I don't. But so long as you did that, then you're married. And whenever your wife calls you and says, honey, can we spend some time together? Are you questioning my marriage? Well, that's what Christians say whenever you talk about the Lord. Are you questioning my salvation? Are you saying I'm not saved? Because God is a legal problem that they believe they have solved. They have solved him with particular little steps that are in fact works, but which they call something else. And so whenever you question that, whenever you challenge that, there's not this enthusiasm that says, I want to know you more. I want to know your power. I want to know your grace. I want to know your goodness. Some may say this, but... The legal construct is, it pervades so much of conversation and debate today. And that's what, that's what we want to draw out, is the contrast between a legalistic mindset, which we believe describes most of what is called grace and faith, in the, in the, specifically in the evangelical church today, uh, versus a relational paradigm which we believe actually constitutes salvation. And I imagine that already we are reframing, and just in reframing things, we might have already said something offensive, and if we have, 
that would hopefully produce a question on somebody's heart. And you, you're welcome to chime in at any point. Um, you know, one of the things that we're going to look at is a definition of faith. We believe that Scripture gives us its own definitions for critical terms, that we do not arrive at definitions outside of Scripture and then impose them back on Scripture, that we have to learn what faith means from Scripture and then understand whether we're walking in it. We believe that we can't decide what sovereignty is outside of Scripture and then superimpose it on Scripture and try to make sense out of it, or we'll come up with some very tangled doctrines. We have to let Scripture speak to us in its entirety. And if, if we look at some of these terms like faith, today you're going to find uh, different definitions, but predominantly a very truncated, watered-down, minimalistic definition of faith. And that's not what we see emerging from the chapter of the heroes of faith or from the whole of the New Testament and old. So that's, that's one of the things that we want to really question. Is faith inert? And if it is inert, is it legitimate saving faith? We believe that it is possible for faith to be legitimate and illegitimate. That's what Paul means in 1 Corinthians 15 where he says, I make known to you, the brethren, I make known to you brethren, the gospel by which you are saved, in which you now stand, so on and so forth. And then he concludes by saying, unless you believed in vain. And that word vain is, only appears a couple times in the New Testament, but it's the same word as he uses, you will be judged by every idle word. It, it literally means useless. Unless you had useless belief. And that's, a, that's just a signal that it's possible for us to adopt something that we have called faith, but that would never qualify as such from the New Testament perspective. Is faith a mental assent merely? Is it me acceding to facts, truths about Jesus? Or is it something else? And, and where do we draw the line? Some will say, no, it has to be from the heart. Okay. Is there anything else that needs to evidence that faith? James seems to, to suggest that some faith is dead, meaning that it's a corpse. It's not really faith. It's not a faith that you wish was alive, but at least you've got that. It's, it's no longer a faith, just as surely as when a person dies, they're no longer a person. They're the corpse of a person. But when a person passes away and their body is left with you, you say, they are no longer with us. So when, when James says faith without works is dead, he says it is a corpse. It's no longer with us. So whatever this is, you can't say we're justified by this thing that is in vain, that is false, that is dead. We're going to look at salvation again in relational terms. What does it mean? Why does the scripture so persistently refer to salvation in spatial terms, in positional terms? 
So it says over and over and over and over that we are saved in him. Romans 8, there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. It talks about being found in him, not having a righteousness of our own. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Speaks about having fellowship, ongoing relationship with the Father, and it ties this to our salvation in 1 John 1, 5 through 7, and really through all of 1 John. It talks about being united with Him through our repentance in Romans 6. We are united with Him through death. He who has died has ceased from sin. Talks about we are uh, justified through death. Freed, but it's the same word. It says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God, indicating that regeneration cannot be separated from justification. So let me introduce one final, par- uh, one final paradigm. We might get to more, but one final paradigm that we're going to question. In... How many of you are familiar with the law of parsimony or what is called Occam's razor? William of Occam is influential in, in uh, establishing rationalism as it currently stands. But he, he, one of the laws of parsimony is, is uh, that the simplest answer is basically the best answer. And William of Occam states, he says, the hallmark of a failing paradigm is the multiplication of entities. Can we just process this for just a minute? The hallmark of a failing paradigm is the multiplication of entities. Now, what that means is that if someone starts to pin you down on an inconsistency in your argument... All you have to do is create another subcategory to include their exception and say that your argument still stands. So, for example, if in the New Testament they looked at salvation as a relationship with God and they used constructive terms to describe this singular relationship, and those terms may have included justification, sanctification, regeneration, glorification, expiation, so on and so forth, then what the hallmark of a failing paradigm is to create multiple entities out of those events. So you're going to see theology go out of its way to say, well, justification happens here. Sanctification happens subsequently. Glorification happens like this, and so on and so forth. But this model that dissects and creates multiple categories out of interchangeably referenced events is the hallmark of a deteriorating paradigm. The broadest category for salvation is given in John 17, 3, when he says, this is it, to know the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom he has sent And these other words and terms are constructive, but we're going to see that Paul uses them fluidly and interchangeably. 
So we're going to talk, the hallmark of a deteriorating paradigm is the multiplication of entities. So we're going to see theology make multiple categories to describe salvation that are in some kind of sequential uh, uh, sequence that they have created. Then we're going to see them make different categories out of faith and out of obedience. Well, this is belief, and that's what saves you, and this is obedience, and that's good but not necessary, and so on and so forth. And this is false. Even according to the standards of, of rationalism, this is a failing paradigm. And it's, it's failing not only because it is flagrantly inconsistent with Scripture, which is going to be our emphasis today, and it's failing not only because it is contradictory to itself and violates the law of parsimony, but it's failing because we look at its fruit and we are aghast at what is happening to the church across the world. Now, the church has taught us to judge fruit by its doctrine. Beware of false doctrine, the church would teach us, you will know good fruit by whether it adheres to the doctrine we've said is orthodox. But that's not how Jesus told us to assess a tree. He told us that we should beware of false prophets who come to us in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And he did not say, you won't know them, so just stay scared. He said, you will know them by their fruit. And then he went on to tell us, you cannot take figs from a thorn bush. You cannot find good fruit on a bad tree. Now, I recently expounded on the differences between appearances and fruit, which he is obviously drawing a distinction between those because he says they, they look like sheep, but they have bad fruit. So he's not just talking about looking good. Fruit is the substance of life. It's something that cannot be put on like a shirt or a tie or a coat. Fruit, it comes from the Spirit, as he, as he makes clear in Galatians. Amen? So, we're going to look at some of these different paradigms. And we're going to contrast between them. And we're going to show, hopefully through your questions and through a discussion, an interactive discussion, that God is proposing a relationship with us. And minimal requirements do not work in a genuine relationship of love. They would be offensive to someone who truly loved you if you started imposing them on that relationship. And so if we truly love God, it's time to lay aside our legalism and re-examine salvation as wholeness. Here's the last paradigm, I guess, that I'll give you before, before we get into the weeds. Salvation does not describe a discrete, particular event. It describes life, and life is whole. Brother Dan referred to irreducible complexity yesterday. We think that's a powerful analogy to the wholeness that we find in Christ. Whereas the hallmark of a deteriorating paradigm has destroyed that. Michael Behe, who, who 
has written a book, uh, Darwin's Black Box, and has gone to bat for creationism. He talks about irreducible complexity. He gives the example of a mousetrap. And he says, a mousetrap, if you look at it, you've got a board, you've got a spring, you've got a clamp, you've got all these different elements. And he said, it's very simple, but it's complex enough that if you take one system off of that trap, it's no longer a mousetrap. And he said, if that is the case, it's irreducibly complex. You can't lose one system and watch it kind of moving in stages through its development. So he says, if you take the spring off, you don't have a less good mousetrap. You have a board. <laughs> Do you understand? And he says there are certain systems in biochemistry and astrophysics and so on and so forth where you cannot remove one element and not lose the entire function of the system. And he uses that to persuade that, that evolutionary biology can't be happening in the manner that Darwin posits. Do you follow? Because you don't have room for gradual development if you remove one element and the entire system fails. Capiche? So, in a sense, we believe the same can be said of the wholeness that is in Christ. It's not a perfect analogy. And someone perhaps can show us its flaws. But we believe that the same can be said of wholeness in Christ. That salvation is a term synonymous with the word wholeness. Synonymous with the term life. I came that you may have life and have it to the whole. That's why a synonym for salvation is the term eternal life. What we want to see is what sustains life, not these particular legal problems, legal constructs with legal solutions. Rather, it's a relational paradigm. Okay, so I am going to stop there, and if anybody wants to add to the framework that I've just given, please do that. Otherwise, we can start getting into questions. I was just thinking as you were speaking about the positive side of this, which is the invitation. Not that there was anything that was negative about what was shared, but you know, I hope that in this room, we've been talking a lot about the fragrance of life and the fragrance of death, that the message, it can hit someone in one of two ways. It can be a message that is really repugnant or just you, you feel a revolt against, you feel something fighting against, or it can be a message that is just about the greatest thing you've ever heard. And when I think about the relational model versus a model based in a courtroom, I think so many have been stuck in that courtroom model for a long time. And what it has done, it has kept the heart from swelling and thinking about what an incredible invitation it is to get to know God. And, you know, I would think the cruelest laws that would exist in a land of love would be the outlaw of its expression. Meaning, love exists, but you outlaw every way that you could express it. That would be cruelty. I mean, think about it. Tell a husband and wife that they can be married, but they cannot express it in any way. Think of how the heart would yearn to be able to find ways to be able to show it, and yet it was outlawed to do so. Well, where lawlessness is going to increase and love is going to go, grow cold, it's interesting that the church has made obedience 
the very thing that would be the overflow of the heart, the very thing we'd want to do. I don't think mighty men of war heard that David was thirsty and busted through a garrison of Philistines to get him one cup of water for any other reason than their love and their feeling towards David compelled such action, compelled such a response. And I just want today, I mean, especially as I know how the day is going to go um, with some exciting things this evening and things, I want people to start to, to think about that everyone in this room is invited to know the most dynamic, wonderful, incredible being and to be called into a relationship with him by which your life is not going to be defined by this pursuit, by, by entering into this love and enjoying all of its fruit. That is far superior to solving a God problem because I'll tell you who's left after you solve the problem, you. And frankly, I don't find me all that interesting. I'd much rather lose me and get to find him. That sounds exciting. So. Amen. Shall we get into faith a little bit? How do we define faith? Let's discuss alternate definitions to faith. Somebody in the audience, would you want to define faith for us? I always used to ask this question in um, Teen Challenge where we would uh, teach. And incidentally, we were in a room full of addicts and obviously we felt God's love extended to them and, and God's grace. But we were in a room full of addicts and dysfunction, broken lives, broken families. And I never ever went into one that didn't feel like they had salvation totally stitched up. It was like, well, okay, you know, and, and I would ask this question, how do you define faith? And Brother Daniel, what would they answer every time? Get your mic there. <laughs> Substance of things hoped for, evidence of things not seen. That's right. See, they knew that scripture, so they would quote that every time. Substance of things hoped for, evidence of things not seen. And for them, that meant the lack of substance of things hoped for, the no evidence of things not seen. <laughs> Does faith have witnesses? Does faith have evidences? Somebody give me a definition of faith. Anybody? Unwavering trust and fidelity in God. Unwavering trust and fidelity in God. I accept that. Amen. How do we know whether we have faith in someone? Brother Zach gave the example the other day of, um, you know, if I was sitting down at a table and there was a glass of water in front of me and I went to take a, a, a drink and he came running up and said, oh, no, 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 don't drink that. That's poisonous. And if I said to him, yes, sir, I, I believe you, Do we see in that, that allegory the contradiction between profession and works? 
And do we see that works cannot be separated from faith, at least in that allegory? You cannot separate legitimate faith from the activity it's connected to? Please. When we, when we see a scripture like Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness, knowing the definition of faith is important because it's saying his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Amen? So whatever it was that was counted to him as righteousness is what we need to understand. So knowing the definition of what, we, what that is can make all the difference in the world, how we understand that. So what does justify us? What does, what is credited as righteousness? Does that, do you understand the question? So when we say justi we're justified by faith, we need to know what faith is. Noah, when divinely warned, accepted it and just knew that God would do the rest for him, right? <laughs> Told his wife, it's a wonderful thing we're hearing from God, but it would deny his sovereignty for me to get out a saw or a nail or a hammer or some gopher wood and work for 220 years. It says, by faith, Noah, when divinely warned, obeyed. And so we have to ask the question, is it possible that obedience is the legitimate product of saving faith? Because it concludes that by saying, and through this obedience, he became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. Now He's the first one to, to fall into that category. Noah became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. And you can see clearly that if he had had profession without obedience, he would not have been able to call it faith. It reminds you of Titus 1.16, right? These profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him. You've heard the English adage, deeds speak louder than words. Well, it seems like Paul subscribed to that. Because he's, he gives us two expressions, one coming from your mouth and the other from your actions. And he seems to say that the actions speak louder than words because he follows it up. By their deeds they deny him being detestable and abominable children, worthless for any good work. Now I suppose some would make pretzels of their brains and of scripture trying to explain to us that abominable children are still right with God and saved but I think that that is a stretch at best. Someone will say to you, what must I do to be saved? Well, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, but what does it mean to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? I remember a guy in, do you remember this? He said to us, he quoted, was it Acts 16? 29, somewhere in there? And he said, 
Paul said, what must I do to, or the, the man asked Paul, what must I do to be saved? And he said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, period. No more. But you go and read it, and that's not what it says. He tells him to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and it says, and so he got up and was baptized that very hour. You see, theology has multiplied entities so that belief is one thing and obedience is another, but that's not true to Scripture. We see Jesus in Luke when he is preaching to the Pharisees, and all of a sudden, four guys start taking the tiles off the roof to lower a man in front of him. The Bible says, and when Jesus saw their faith, which indicates that faith is something you see, is something visible. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, and, and what he did was he forgave. He brought forgiveness. Amen. Many times he, he, he told them, your faith has made you well. And elsewhere he said, your faith has saved you. Are we getting closer? Go ahead. Brother Rossi, just two, the, the two sons, will you go out into the field and do the work? Yes, Dad, I go. And he went, not. And the other said, no, but then went. Profession versus action. I was just thinking that Scripture, you know, it, it has no difficulty linking these two ideas of belief and obedience, unbelief and shrinking back and disobedience. And it talks about this often in the book of Hebrews, but as we've disconnected them further and further, you know, it's really because faith has become this assenting to an abstract set of ideas. And if you say you believe in some historical event or some abstract set of ideas, that, that says to be saving faith. But you know, Scripture continues to juxtapose these things, and we come with that paradigm onto its pages, we find incongruency. You know, we find something that's just not matching up. And so, you know, you think about when the rich young ruler approaches Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And, you know, I think a lot of modern evangelicals might say, that they would have hoped that Jesus went to Bible school because he really missed that answer, you know. Um, he, all he needed to do was to simply say, believe on my name. The interesting thing is, is that he did say that, but he said it in a language that we are no longer tuned to anymore. He said this, sell all that you own, give it to the poor, and come, follow me. That would have been believing in Jesus that day. He did say Believe in me, and you will have eternal life. But he said it in a way we can't hear anymore. Because when we hear faith, when we hear belief, it's divorced from any action in our life. Let me ask you, do you think that's a doctrine of demon or something given to us by God? It feels mighty suspicious to me, doesn't it? It seems very off that it would be out there when God wanted to change everything out here. That he says if he changed the inward man, it'll furnish the outward of a man. To me, that sounds like a type of faith that would shape the whole course of my life. That would change every relationship that I touch. That's the type of belief. And I'll just end on a funny example. And I'll eventually write this down so it gets funnier and the details get better. But... Uh, <laughs> 
I always try to make it up on the spot as I go, but I think about, um, you know, I think about this very large Hummer, this is what's in my mind, with oversized tires, an NRA sticker on the back window, a couple guns back there, and a, a man's pulling up to a Bernie Sanders political rally. And uh, he gets out of his Hummer and his seal boots and, um, and a shirt that says, you know, let's burn the Brazilian rainforest. And uh, he walks up to the political rally and he starts chanting, Bernie, Bernie, Bernie. <laughs> and everyone in the rally turns and looks over and says, well, this makes absolutely no sense at all. And... You, you look at the man, you say, why are you here? And he says, because I believe in everything that Bernie Sanders has said. And you look at the Hummer, you look at the NRA sticker, you look at the seal boots, you look at the I hate Brazilian rainforest shirt, and you start to go, I don't think belief means what you think it means. <laughs> huh? Yes. I have thought about it, and I was thinking maybe you can extrapolate. The demons believed in Jesus. They were obedient to what he said, and yet they are not Christ followers, right? So there's a difference of just belief or understanding or actions, because the, the demons were obedient to Christ when he told them to get out, go there. There's that last part of being, maybe extrapolate on that for us as Christ followers listening to God and be obedient. Because I think a lot of people have faith, you know. Like, like I said, the, the demons knew that Jesus was the Son of God. Um, so they had faith and understanding in that. So there is some kind of a differentiation in there of how we're to know and to be obedient. And I think someone said, obedience, I mean, faith is being obedient to what God wants to do in the way God tells us to do it. And I think sometimes we know what God wants us to do. Well, it's going back to... Uh, Cain and Abel, right? They knew what God wanted. One did it God's way, and the other one said, I'm going to do it my way. So maybe a little bit more on that, because that gets a little bit confusing. Yes. So in uh, James 2.19, I think you're quoting, James has what can only be mis uh, understood as some sarcasm when he says, you believe there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. And there, there's this shred of sarcasm there that he's saying that that measure of belief is not going to cut it and of course that's the chapter where he talks about the corpse faith um, that is not faith at all I wouldn't say that the demons were obedient as a manner of life or as a pattern of existence I would say that when commanded because they are spirits they could not resist the power of his command but they didn't walk in obedience, and therefore they did not live by faith. But I agree with you that faith describes our attitude toward God when he speaks. Because it says faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So when God, faith, faith uh, necessitates a word from God. Because it is simply our response to his instruction. So when he speaks, what, how, do we, how do we feel about that? Just like 
sin is conceived through desire in the same way obedience is conceived through faith, through the word. And the, the word, the faith is conceived through the word. So when the Lord says something, when his presence, his word comes to us, it does entail not just the what, but the when, the how, and that's seen in Matthew 10. I think that some of the, one of the, the main uh, false dichotomies that we encounter is a false dichotomy between faith and works or between grace and works. Does that make sense to everybody? And we know that there is a legitimate dichotomy between a certain kind of works and faith, and saving faith. We accept that fully. We believe Paul is overtly drawing that out. But we would, we would argue that Paul is arguing in Romans and in Galatians against this legalistic mindset that wants to withdraw from relationship. So the pious Jews of, of that era were wanting to withdraw from obedience through faith, from a walk in the Spirit. Galatians, he says, you began well. You began in the Spirit, but now you're trying to finish in the flesh. So he's, he's wanting to keep them from going to the flesh. He says, who... Who deceived you that you should not obey the truth? So he's wanting to rescue them from disobedience in their return to the flesh. The mindset of the pious Jew of that day was to say, we don't have to walk in the spirit and thereby not fulfill the lust of the flesh. We don't have to be led by the spirit and thereby be a son of God. Romans 8, 14. We can just say we were circumcised. That's settled. So we believe he was actually combating an attitude of withdrawal and complacency in, in a works of the law that was no longer uh, mediating salvation, brokering salvation. Do you understand? And so, and by the same token, we can see Jesus and Paul speak about f works of obedience that come from faith or from, from grace through faith, and they refer to it as not works or as not our activity. Does everybody follow me? So in Matthew 10, Jesus says, when you are brought before rulers and governors for my name's sake, do not worry about what you're going to say or how you're going to say it. And then he says, for it will not be you who speaks. So right there we have the precedent that there is a kind of activity that we're going to enter into through faith that cannot be classified as human works. It will not be you who speaks, but my Father who speaks in you. And then he continues what you should say and how you should say it. There's the what and the how. But we can correctly say of those things that stem from faith or from grace through faith, that it is not us, it is God. So Paul in 1 Corinthians 15.10 says, By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. For I worked harder than all of you. Then he, con then he continues, But it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. 
So grace is working harder than anyone or in Paul's life. But he forbids them to call it works. It was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. So this, these scriptures indicate, among, with, among many others, that there are two kinds of works. There are the works of our choosing, which amount to our righteousness, filthy rags. And there are the works of faith, which amount to, they're inseparable with faith. They, they are what credits Christ's righteousness. To whom did he swear, Hebrews 3.18, to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient, so we see they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Did everybody get that? They were disobedient, so we see they were not able to enter because of unbelief. So the writer of Hebrews is clearly saying if they were disobedient, there was a lack of faith. Clearly tying faith with obedience. Acts 6-7, the word of God kept spreading and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Romans 1-5, Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake. So this whole notion of works versus what, what Christianity has, what the evangelical theology has done is it said justification is the work of God. But sanctification, it's something that's a process. It's something we get to participate in. We would argue that it's all either the work of God or it's all the work of man. Whatever is of God is legit and whatever is of man is not no matter which category you've put it in we can elaborate that in a minute in Romans 16 25 he speaks of the obedience uh, or, or, or he speaks of leading to the obedience of faith this is not a phrase you would hear often in evangelical circles the obedience of faith but that's that's the obedience that denotes relationship please one comment on, on that passage you just referenced and the earlier one. Actually, some translations translate that as the obedience that is faith. And he says exactly the same thing in the very first verses of Romans. And then he concludes, so right there in the beginning of Romans 1 and right at the end of Romans, he says exactly the same phrase again, almost as if he's trying to tell us before he gets into the whole book of Romans, which is used by so many people to try to avoid the connection of obedience and faith, he's like, let's establish that obedience is faith. And then he concludes by saying the same thing again. You can look it up. 10, 16. Yes, go ahead. But it's that if he asks this of me, I 
think this is along those lines, but it seems to be interconnected to also what Ryan had asked about as well. And I feel as though we're dealing with an issue around um, how we come to know God. And, um, you know, it seems as though that maybe we don't respect how thorough of a work has to happen in the dismantling of an old edifice or way of thinking in order to actually start on the right course. I still think we're trying to patch up a fallen, a, a house that's falling apart. Um, what I mean by that is, is that um, we have formed the relationship with God largely in the Western world to be building a very complex edifice according to doctrine and then inviting God to come and fill the house that we have built. We feel security in that. But I would say that that is very much likened unto what the Israelites did when they asked Aaron to melt down the gold and to form this calf and said, Behold the God who has delivered us out of Egypt. And John chapter 5, he said that a light came out of the wilderness and for a little while, you were willing to walk in that light. But he said, but now something's changed. And he said that you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. And yet you refuse to come to me. And so there's something that man constantly does to redefine God, to even name him and sit as an authority over him so that we can feel as though we have control and we have secured what we need. And yet Jesus, in the, in the best paradigm that I think exists, <laughs> the children are trying to come to him and the disciples are keeping the children back and he says, no, let them come to him for such is the kingdom of God. And he set one upon his, on, on, on his lap and he said, if you do not become like one of these you by no means can enter the kingdom of God. 
And this, if we will just go ahead and say that it's not checking a few doctrinal boxes that's going to secure that day that I fear most. It's going to have to be that I abandon my life in a radical trust unto this voice that is calling me to live a life unto him. And everything he speaks to me, every word, I'm going to count it as my joy now and I'm going to put it into practice and he's going to reveal a little bit more of who he is to me. And as a child learns to trust a father, he's going to father me out of the death that I have been in and he's going to father me into the life that he is. And he's going to teach me all about everything that he is. You know, I saw a train the other day and it had so many you know, uh, carloads behind it. I mean, it was like, I don't know, it must have been one of the largest trains I've seen in my life. And I mean, it went on and on and on and on. And, and I just thought to myself, here's the heart and the mind in a perfect metaphor, Lord. Without that locomotive of the heart driving that train, none of that knowledge comes with it. You know what I mean? It's when the heart starts to know God, something starts to fill the mind and starts to come to know Him and appreciate Him and be amazed at Him, but it doesn't start there. It starts in this trust, this giving of oneself relationally over. And I will say in that place, all that fear is going to go away. All that sense of, of, of insecurity and all of that's going to change because you're not trying to manage God. And I'll, I'll, I'll just end on this, but this is the dynamic I think about. Is that I think most Western Christians, imagine they're going to stand before the gates of heaven and they're going to be in a single file line with a Scantron test that they're filling in last minute. And they're looking over their friend's shoulder to see how they answered question seven. You know, and oh, he did C on that one. Ooh. You know, and they're changing their answers real time. And they're hoping that a 70% pass grade on their doctrine is what is going to allow them to enter in. And yet he says in Matthew 7, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, and I will say, I do not know you. And he says, because you did not do my Father's will. So I don't know about you, but it would be insanity to one day be in that moment and think that I was accepted by any other thing than this, that I was known by God and I knew him as well. That everything about my life had become one in him and that was it, you know? And I just feel that tension in what a lot of people share and think about and I would say maybe it's time to just take all those doctrines Put them aside. Maybe you can come back to them if they're really helpful at a later date. And today, just start saying, I'm going to trust him. I'm going to obey every word he speaks. Everything he impresses upon me, I'm going to take a step in. I'm going to take a step towards. I'm going to learn the dynamic of hearing his word and obeying his voice. And I'm going to build a relationship with God, a knowing relationship, a saving relationship. And Justine, I just, I want to, I'll get right to you, but I just want to say, <clears throat> thank you for your question. Um, I also want to just say that, 
that the greatest act of faith is repentance. When we surrender not a moment in time, but we surrender our lives to God. And as surely as we see Jesus move under the unction of the Father throughout his entire ministry, but we see his greatest faith at Gethsemane, also we see a Christian's greatest faith in repentance. And that is not what the watered-down version of repentance. That is the repentance that lays the ax to the root of the tree that is planted in the culture of the world and uproots it and puts it in the culture of Christ. That is the, the repentance that tears down the old house so that Christ can build anew. That is the repentance that dies, that loses its life. And there's no greater faith than to say, I'm willing to lose, I'm willing to take up my cross and lose my life on the word of a man whose love I trust. That is faith. So the, the, this is why in the foundation stones of Hebrews 6, repentance and faith toward God are one stone. They're two sides of the same coin. You cannot have repentance without faith, and you cannot have faith without repentance. You cannot have them without each other. They are, they're inseparable. And I just, in, in your thing, in, in your analogy, we're not seeking to give from ourselves. We're seeking to give ourselves. We're not seeking to offer sacrifices from the flesh. We're seeking to offer the flesh. Offer yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable form of worship, etc. There was another question. We hear believe, and that's all you have to do. And you've you've addressed that. Um, but the thing, another thing that I've heard, and I think a lot of us have heard, is all we have to do is love, love. And you know, what, could you expound a little bit on love versus faith? Because I mean, even even my daughter came home and was asking about, okay, well, this person is in a particular sin. Um, why, why are we taught to hate them? And then we tried to explain to her, well, we hate the sin, but love the sinner. But that, that's kind of a, you know, a cat chasing its tail to me sometimes. So when, 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 when we get the argument or, or we get the, the legalistic side of love where they say, well, we just have to love them. We, 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 you know, and, and then they take this to someplace that it was never meant to be. And, and to me, it, it, it's got to tie into faith somehow, faith versus love. Well, I think of Paul's words immediately, where he says the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself through love. And we know that faith must be in God. We don't have faith in people. We have faith in God. But our faith in God finds expression in love, service, and care for each other. We cannot say we love him whom we have not seen if we do not love our brothers whom we have seen. But then I'm also thinking of 1 John 2 where he says, Whoever keeps God's word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. 
And so there, there is this tendency in the, in the flesh to pit obedience or God's word against love. But we don't know what love is. This is how we know what love is, which indicates apart from Christ's sacrifice, apart from willing to die and lose our own image in the eyes of others, we don't know what love is. But God does, you know. And so we may think love is one thing, and the Lord knows it's something quite different. We look at the interaction of Jesus with his disciples or with various people, and we cannot say that he that he adheres precisely to the standard that is given in Christianity of sweetness. There, there is some, there's some tough love in there. Get behind me, Satan. You know, How long must I put up with you, you slow of heart to believe? There's some, there's some tough love, the cleansing of the temple and so on and so forth. And yet we don't know. I, I, if I think that love is of man then it is, me, it is for me to decide what, what love looks like in an individual's life. But with John, if I believe that love is of God, then I have to say, God, I don't know how to love. I don't know what this person needs. But you said whoever keeps your word, that's how the love of God would be perfected. So would you show me, no matter how painful it is for either side, would you show me what brings you honor? And would you help me to love you more than this person, because you're the source of my love for this person. I look at the paradox, and there are different ways to render this, but I'm going to render it this way. Um, I look at the paradox in Jesus' uh, last exchange with Peter, where he asks Peter, do you love me more than them? And Peter responds, yes. He responds in the, firm, the affirmative. Um, and Jesus would follow that question up with, then feed my sheep. So his object was to get Peter to care for the brethren. But he wanted Peter to have a, an overarching, superior love, a higher love for God. And that was what his love for the brethren was going to stem from. To just of the, the relational paradigm we've been talking about all along. And if we, if we try to separate the love that we supposedly have in our heart or in our heads for someone or or for God, if we try to separate that from the works that would express that love, we've lost our definition. We've lost our biblical definition of what love even is. If I if I'm married to my wife and and I say, well, I love you, and she says, well, you know, uh, and I say, well, I love you in my heart, so like I don't have to pay the bills or you know, hold down a job or do any of that, right? Because isn't it enough that I just, I really, I really like you, you know? Or if she says to me, I really love you, but does that mean I have to fix you dinner? You know, how is it love if it's not expressed in that way? And I think of John's words where he says, let us not love in word and in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Our works have to be expressing our love or it's not really love. I think this is the book that we quoted from already, James. Didn't Martin Luther want to cut this out of the Bible? That in Hebrews. That in Hebrews. You know, let's deal with it that way. You know, but he, he says, uh, 
Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works faith was made perfect or complete? And the scripture was fulfilled. It was only fulfilled, the scripture Daniel read, when, which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. And, and uh, the thing that gets me there is Abraham really loved God, you know. He could not have done what he did if he did not have this incredible, profound trust in God. And like your dad shared in, in that message a couple of weeks ago, you know, he said, you know, when the person questioned, you know, what's going on here? He told him, he said, we will come back down the mountain. Abraham knew who God was and he knew that, that there was some test going on here, but he loved him so much that he could obey and we can understand why God accounted his belief, his faith as righteousness because he was full of the love of God. And that's what fulfilled the scripture. You know what I mean? Amen. Amen. I don't know why Luther wanted to cut that out of the Bible. It's wonderful. <laughs> question the sister over here had um, a minute or the statement. Um, I'm remembering when, um, when we were kids and uh, we, uh, we didn't want to wash the dishes, but we were willing to do that if our parents asked us to. But you'd find yourself, you know, taking a really long time to feed the chickens or uh, outside, you needed to go check on that, and you avoid the being in the in any kind of position where mom could ask you to wash the dishes. And yet, if we were going to go on a fishing trip, and she said we're not going until the dishes are done, everybody was in the kitchen washing the dishes. And I just think of um, how we can position ourselves in a place where we can hear God telling us what to do. Because we want to participate in what he's doing. And I think of the scripture where Jesus said, He who wills to do my will, then he's going to know whether the doctrine I teach is of God or not. And that we, we have to be in that place of positioning ourselves because we love God, because we want to do whatever he's calling us to do. We situate ourselves where we're going to hear everything he has to say. And don't try to occupy ourselves in other places where we might not hear that. I, don't, I do not want to have to do that. So I'm going to occupy myself over here and over here and over here doing all these other works of righteousness so that I don't hear God telling me the one thing I really don't want to do. It's this whole paradigm again, this false paradigm where we've been taught to identify obedience as externalism and libertinism as grace. And what a reproach on the word of God. You know, 
to Brother Howard's point and Sister Amanda's, in John 14, verse 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, we've been taught the opposite. If we keep his commandments, we're not living by love, we're living by fear. Isn't that right? But he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. In verse 23 of the same chapter, he says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Brother Dylan? I was just going to say, back to what the brother shared about, is it faith or is it love? And how we get in this either-or fallacy, the multiplication of entities. And I, I thought of when Jesus was speaking of the Spirit, and he said, whoever asks will receive the Spirit. And then he says, whoever hungers and thirsts shall be filled. And then uh, Paul goes on to say, but we receive the Spirit by the hearing of faith. And then Peter in Acts 5 says that God gives the Holy Spirit to those who obey him. So my question is, is it those who ask, or is it those who hunger and thirst? Or is it those who have the hearing of faith, or is it those who obey? Which one is it? And the answer is yes. <laughs> and how we tend to multiply all these things and to try to find something that we can grasp and realize it all comes together in this relationship with God. Let's add for the next, John seems to not leave a lot of wiggle room over there. In uh, 15, 14, you are my friend if you do whatever I command you. When you shift them and say, you are no longer, I call you servant, for servant does not know his master. He say the shift from the slave to the friends that if you do whatever I command you. And I looked at, um, at that you look at Paul describing the call of his life. You know, there he did it a few times in Acts, but in the 26th uh, chapter to Agrippa. And he said to him, and I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. But first in, and he explained how his faith manifests itself in works that benefited all of us. From John 15, it should be troubling even when speaking of justification because I'm going to wait till I'm not competing with that. But he says, Brother Tzafrir quoted him saying, you are my friends if you do what I command you. But what is the preceding verse? He speaks of his sacrifice, his atoning, saving sacrifice. And he says, greater love has no one than this that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. So he's saying he speaks of himself, but then he qualifies that group that is receiving that sacrifice. And tying to your others, we can look at Romans 10, 16. They have not all obeyed the gospel. Just one second, you're good. For Isaiah says, who has believed our report? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, a couple of years ago, I was so 
One thing I want to say on that, it's like back to the relational paradigm versus the, the, the abstract. You know, I think of what um, Micah said. He says, what does the Lord require? I mean, he said to do justly and to love mercy and to do all the things the Lord told me 10 years ago, to walk humbly with God. So this obedience that we're talking about is not God gives us a list of things to do. And so now we're going to spend our whole life doing those things. It's a living, daily, abiding relationship. And that's what Paul was calling the Galatians back into. So he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit, this power of God that came into your life by a list of works that somebody gave you to do, that you could spend your life doing those things, or by the hearing of faith? God began to speak into their life. They received, just like Cornelius, while Peter was speaking, the Holy Spirit fell upon him. And so he's saying, if that's how you received it, why are we switching? He said, if, why are you now going to try to be made perfect by the flesh? And he's assuming in that there's a process to perfection. There's an aiming for perfection, but it's not going to happen by resorting to a list of things. Got to do this, got to do this, got to do this, got to do this. But walking in this ongoing relationship daily. The Lord, give us daily our daily bread. Yeah. Give us this day our daily bread. What are you speaking to me today? <laughs> Amen? And that's going to keep us from going into that place because we, I think we can all identify with that. You find yourself grinding, 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 but the life subsiding. And what we need to do is come back into the relationship where God is speaking. Amen. True New Testament righteousness should always be an invitation to relationship. So God gives us things to do which we cannot do apart from his help. And he doesn't do that to humiliate us or to heap on us a burden we cannot bear. He, do, he does that to invite us into a relationship. So in Matthew 5, he doesn't say... Uh, the Pharisees demanded righteousness, but good news, you don't have to be that anymore. He said, unless your righteousness ex exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. But he does not say, blessed are those who do hunger and thirst for righteousness, for I'll help them out. He says, blessed are they that hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, righteousness is something that we're, that describes activity, that describes right standing. But the, the solution is to be filled with God's spirit. He's interested in a relationship. He's interested in a daily relationship. And dutifulness is where we get a list of things that we think are God's will and we do them without him. That's what Martha was doing. 
But that is not obedience. Obedience is living dependent on his spirit every day and walking in the intimacy of that relationship. what that meal was supposed to bring together in that moment, you know, and it was really about Jesus was there, and we wanted to sit at his feet and hear what he had to say, but for her, it was all about the meal and what we needed to do, but just telling God, it just all comes together in that, that wholeness of, of hearing, sitting at his feet, Amen. and that meal was just creating a space for that to happen. Amen. <laughs> We're going to take a break, but we'll go ahead and ask this, somebody over here. Yes, go ahead, please. We'll take one more question and we'll take it. First of all, I am so overwhelmed because this is good doctrine. This is good. <laughs> and I'm just so happy because sometimes I feel like even in, you know, witnessing and you know, my life to family, friends, it's almost, I, I never understand how the overwhelming emphasis of scripture, the witness that shows obedience to faith, is not seen. Um, it's, it's not seen. I guess, and so my question would be, with otherwise well-meaning leaders, ministries, teachers, what, how did we get so off bases in the context of overwhelming scripture that ties obedience to faith? And then what is the fear from, from otherwise well-intended leaders, ministries, churches to tie faith and obedience when they approach the scriptures? I don't, I don't understand that. And maybe you can speak to I'll let Brother Zach take that. I don't know if I'll answer it in its entirety. I just think that it is interesting to at least note that it was brought up today that Martin Luther um, wanted to remove the book of James and Hebrews, um, believing that the content in those two books were too inconsistent with the other portions of the New Testament and could not harmonize those passages together. It's a little telling then that if the church today has formed almost all of its doctrines of salvation from a man who could not bring those passages of Scripture together that maybe we're building on a suspicious foundation. You, know, you, you see what I mean? I, if, um, if most of, the, most of the doctrines I hear concerning... Um, what it means to enter into a saving relationship with God, if most of those doctrines formed out of the Reformation, and whatever light they had, whatever they were stepping into, brought some clarity, but there were still some major disconnects. There were still things that had not come together in the right way. Then we've got to really rethink, you know, that we're standing on those doctrines as the ones that we're, we are building on right now to, to talk to men and women about what it means to know God. You know, I would say that that, that inconsistency between those two is, um, it should cause a lot of alarm for us. Amen. I think that, I, I'll, let's just conclude here, but I'd like to just add a little bit to that. We, part of the hallmark of the failing paradigm that, that we've been speaking of is a theology that, has, that is comfortable excluding Scripture. 
that says, oh, this is for the Jews, this is for the Gentiles. There's the hallmark of a deteriorating paradigm because we have two entities now. Uh, Oh, this is didactic and this is narrative. You know, all this kind of riffraff that allows us to allows us to bifurcate between scriptures and say we can have this for them and that for for us. And and whereas Jesus says in John 10, the scripture cannot be broken. And I think that, you know, we we thank God for the revelations that Martin Luther brought in as far as they went. But they didn't go far enough. And so there is an insufficient revelation. And the greatest truth is that which has the greatest explanatory power that has the capacity to harmonize without contradiction all of the scripture. And I feel like another major factor is that they have failed to make a distinction between kinds of works, and they have failed to rightly discern what Paul was combating. He was combating the mentality that they are touting. He was combating this detached, it's already in the bag, don't have to worry about it mentality. And he was saying, no, you need to walk by faith. You need to walk in the steps of Abraham. And so if you pull out a couple scriptures and you misapply them into our context, you know, where we're not really battling this, this um, pious Jew mindset that believes the law can still broker salvation, then you can really misconstrue a lot that Paul is saying. Whereas if you take it as a whole and, and, and harmonize it with James and harmonize it with Hebrews and especially with the Gospels and the words of the Lord Jesus, you're going to see something completely different than what is promoted today. The Reformation did not seek to go back to the original church. Martin Luther and those guys, they had a problem with the papacy. They were fine going back to the doctrines of 300 A.D., 400 A.D., where a forensic justification was given so that Constantine could declare his army Christian and run them through the river, you know, they really didn't go back to the beginning. They, they wanted to just rearrange some things. There, there's a long history to how this happened. What's probably obvious to um, there are beliefs that appeal more to the flesh than others. <laughs> and as far as I know, I mean, I think we might all have that battle. <laughs> I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give everybody in this room the benefit of the doubt that we're all well-meaning and we're all, we're all here because we want to follow God, but I don't know about you, but I discover that even in my well-meaningness, I've got to be on guard that I don't fall into the trap of, of going, well, that sounds good, <laughs> instead of guarding against this thing in me that prefers the easy, broad path that many enter by. And, and we don't like to contemplate the possibility that so many people who seem well-meaning could be missing something so crucial and part of that is because uh, we love them and care about them. And if, but I believe if they really are well-meaning and their heart is right, then, and there is that spark of genuine faith in there, then when they hear the truth, they're going to rejoice. They're going to walk into that fresh light that God shows them. Um, and on the other hand, you know, the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, are there few who are saved? It was almost like they wanted some... 
you know, assurance, you know, that, I mean, you know, the way you're talking here makes it sound like a lot of people are, are missing something really important. And he, he didn't reassure them in that sense. He said, you know, many will seek to enter and will not be able to. So he didn't say that, you know, just those who don't want to enter, those are the problem. He said, many will seek to enter and will not be able. So you've got to strive to enter because the, the gate is narrow.